0: Put in your earbuds, pour a cup of tea, or put on your work gloves. It's time for another episode of the No Till Flowers Podcast. As always, I'm your ever curious host, Jenny Love. There is so much in this episode, you guys. So much. In fact, I've decided to split it into two parts because I didn't want to max out your synapses. <laughs> There's just so much in here. I got back behind the microphone with Bryant Mason, AKA the soil doctor, to dive even deeper into plant nutrition. If you haven't already listened to episode 29 in season three, stop this one now and go back to listen to that one first. In episode 29, I introduced Bryant to the flower farming community, and we had this amazing dynamic conversation all about nutrient balancing in living soils. Bryant, who's a certified agronomist for organic growers and an orchardist living in Colorado, has this really exquisite knack for making complicated sciencey topics sound simple and doable. After that last conversation, I tried out a bunch of his suggestions at my farm, and of course, I had to have him back on the show to do a follow-up. So you are in for quite the nerdy treat today. This is a whirlwind tour de force of everything from gypsum to WCA to foliar feeding best practices to biostimulants to amino acids to orchard establishment to a biannual soil drench recipe to supercharge your crops. And there's even a deep dive into tissue testing, how to do it and how to interpret the results. But I'm saving that tissue testing part for a second, shorter episode so that it doesn't get lost. Make sure you come back here for that one in a couple of days. Bryant has a great Instagram account that you should be sure to follow. It's soil underscore doctor. He posts these fantastic short videos that are really to the point and help you get a lot of education in a supercharged way. And while you're over there on the gram, looking him up, be sure you're also following No-Till Flowers. Lots of good content there that augments the topics that you'll hear about on the podcast. As always, a big shout out to the members of the Regenerative Flower Farmers Network who, through their membership, so generously support the making of this podcast. If you're not a member, but you'd like to join, it's just 20 bucks a year. Lots of detailed articles, podcast transcripts, live Q&As, and a community chat are available over on Ruffin. Plus, your membership means I get to make more podcasts. Since January is speeding by, I'd like to remind you that the special offer of three online short courses for $300 will expire before long over on Ruffin. These three courses will help your farm be more profitable and sustainable in 2024. Learn how to increase profit margins in your CSA, add unique foliages to your crop list, and hire a killer farm crew. Pop open the show notes here to grab the link to go take advantage of that offer before it's gone. Lastly, before we get lost in the fascinating world of plant nutrition, I want to give a shout out to those of you who recently left a review for the podcast. I so appreciate the kind words from K.E. Meyer, short cry, and hoping she'll try again. Many thanks for those, friends. I love reading your reviews, so please keep them coming. Alrighty, let's dive into my chat with Bryant Mason, the soil doctor. Thank you for coming back on to talk to me about more nerdy plant nutrition and soil health topics because you were so popular the last time. So welcome back, Brian.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me back.
0: <laughs> we we did have a lot of fun before. So this time we're going to do a lot of follow-up chats about the topics we hit on in last episode, um, just because... I implemented a bunch of the stuff we talked about and tried a lot of the things that we talked about. And I know that you have your own farm and orchard. And so you've been doing some things as well. So I think both of us, both of us have learned a lot over the past season, and it'll be fun to see the follow-up. So we're gonna start with gypsum. Um, the holy grail, at least it has been at my farm. <laughs> so last episode you told me to pile on the gypsum, like tons of gypsum. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm here to report it really uh, did a great job with my soil. I noticed increased uh, plant health, uh, stronger stems, longer stems. All my customers kept talking about how amazing my stem quality was on my flowers. So it really, really helped. Um, and I think that it's worth talking a little bit more about gypsum. So let's refresh everybody about the beauty of gypsum, if you don't mind, right? <laughs> sure
1: sure well i'm glad to hear that it it worked and um do you before we dive into it do you remember how much you were applying Ooh, or yeah. did you have to look through notes
0: <laughs> well i can say that it was not scientific i was buying it in 50 pound bags because that was the best way i could get it here locally though i saw that you got it in giant um um I don't know what do you even call them, duffels or whatever. <laughs> you got them in in big quantities, which you'll have to tell everybody about them. But at my farm, um, we got fifty pound bags, and I was putting about I'd say twenty pounds per. Uh, Three by 50 foot rows. So whatever that math is (laughs) three by 50 feet. Um, I was putting about 20 pounds on that, which was a lot. If I remember my math correctly, um, but remember, my soil had high magnesium. Also, that's the field soil has high magnesium. It's definitely helped with that. And then the greenhouse soil had high soluble salts. So I was trying to really drive that salt off of the particles um, and noticed an exceptionally good response to that in particular. It really helped. So, yeah.
1: Great. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful. So let's dive into gypsum. So gypsum is an organic amendment it's allowed in organic production. It's calcium sulfate and it's really the one of the best sources of soil applied calcium when your pH doesn't need to be adjusted. So when your pH is let's just say above 6.5, you really don't want to raise it much more than that. If it's below six, it's always a good idea to lime. I'm actually a fan of a product called Willastonite because it's calcium silicate. It puts upward pressure Mm -hmm. on the pH and it provides available silica for plants, which is a non-essential but extremely beneficial nutrient, especially for disease suppression. But once the the pH is above 6.5, gypsum is really the best bet for soil applications. It's used across agriculture, across almost every single horticultural crop for calcium and for sulfur. and sulfur is actually another very important nutrient we can talk about at some point. So gypsum, as long as I've been a consultant and as long as I've been growing, gypsum has always been a fairly popular amendment. Um, and I guess that the, the major reasons that growers apply gypsum are um, fruit quality in orchard production, stem strength, and... Eliminating hollow stems and cannabis Mm -hmm. production. But I think most people miss the fact that calcium also is involved in dozens of other physiological functions that just lead to greater all around plant health. From hormone production and messaging, internal signal messaging inside of the plant to disease suppression, um, internode spacing. So you get more internodes per um, unit of stem length. All kinds of things, root growth, root size, and um, nitrogen so uptake,
0: many... right? Does it also impact how much nitrogen can get absorbed into the plant or at least some process of of processing nitrogen in the plant?
1: You're probably right. I, I don't I don't even know all the physiological functions. <laughs> it's involved in essentially everything. I mean, right. and a lot of yeah. these nutrients are a lot of these nutrients have a couple very specific uses, like molybdenum, is essentially it's essential for one function called nitrate reductase, but these other macronutrients are involved in just dozens of functions Mm -hmm. and they all work together. Every time something moves across a membrane, there's protein channels. Physiology is very complicated, but yes, you're probably right about that. Um, So gypsum is, is applied liberally. And I remember our last conversation, I, I remember you being a little shocked at the rate. Yeah, because how the rates much.
0: Are <laughs> right. Yeah. I was like, there's no way you can do that. That is going to throw something off balance. Yeah, right. And I'm here to say, I just dumped the stuff on like so much this oh, past yeah. year. <laughs> it was fine.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the reason for that is because unlike a nitrogen product, calcium is already um, fairly prolific in the soil and there's not really such thing as a calcium excess in plants. Mm. You can easily have too much nitrogen in a plant. Um, You can even have too much potassium, but calcium, you really can't overdo it. But the bigger reason gypsum can be applied so liberally is because the max solubility of gypsum is about seven grams of gypsum per gallon of water, which means that it doesn't it's not, it's, it's soluble to a certain extent, but it's not so soluble that it's going to burn the plant or create some kind of osmotic stress on the roots. Hmm. So any gypsum that's applied in excess just will sit as a calcium sulfate molecule in the soil and won't dissolve any further interesting um, beyond seven or eight grams per gallon of water so fertilizers often have this something called a salt index Mm -hmm. and the salt index of gypsum is extremely low because of that low solubility so it's really not putting any osmotic stress or salt stress on the plants okay um
0: so wait what happens what happens if you don't mind me asking uh what happens to so i dumped it on i definitely probably put more on than is actually soluble like immediately so it's just chilling there like it's just waiting until there is room in the soil solution for it or like what what happens that's that's exactly
1: right that's exactly right so the soil solution is you know the water in the pore space that the roots uptake and Um, you know, once that hits seven or eight grams per gallon of water, it'll just sit as calcium solvent. It'll just hang out. And then as soon as a calcium ion is removed from that solution, another ion will be released. And this is all equilibrium stuff. But so yeah, as soon as the plant uptakes it or it leaches out or it, it, some kind of organic reaction happens and the concentration gradient goes down, it'll just release more um, to reach equilibrium. So there's these soils. the the, with the where the parent material and this is various places in the country the parent material is has a lot of gypsum in it naturally and that's undissolved in um i wouldn't say insoluble but non-soluble gypsum minerals so that's the other way to think about applying gypsum is there's soils where there are tons and tons i mean hundreds of tons of gypsum per acre so there's a lot of plants that grow very happily right material that's gypsum so you can't really over apply it
0: okay that's good to know but then is there a certain point like you know because we don't want to spend too much money on things we don't need to spend too much money on (laughs) when we're farming is there a certain point where i'm just being stupid if i keep buying it and putting it on
1: that is that in my opinion that's what should limit rates is, is budget so i think um a healthy and effective rate that's that's not going to break the bank is a ton per acre. Um, as a reminder, you divide if you, if you want pounds per thousand square feet, which is probably more relevant to most of your,
0: um, listeners, you can just divide (laughs) that.
1: Yeah. That, that ton per acre by 44. And that gives you a rate per thousand square feet. So uh, I think it's 45 pounds per thousand square feet. And, but just for, for a little bit of on the budget component, um, in apple production, in Honey crisp. so let me give you three examples of gypsum use just real quick and that I've worked with. Um, honey Crisp apple growers, ninety percent of organic apples in this country are grown in um, Eastern Washington, mm. and they are they're the masters of Honey Crisp apples. All <laughs> apples, really, but Honey Crisp is is the popular one and the most profitable one. But it suffers from a, a calcium disorder called bitter pit, mm. and so they've had to figure out how to drive enormous amounts of calcium into their apples to avoid bitter pit, because the difference between, um, a 50% pack out where they can only sell 50% of their yeah. apples versus a 98% pack out is interesting going out of business and, and yeah. creating a lot of wealth growing apples, essentially. Right. So they yeah. have figured it out and they apply about one to two tons of gypsum, um, per acre per year.
0: Wow. Every year then, like they just do that over and over again
1: over and over again. Wow. And the reason they do that is because the value of the crop going from 50% pack out to 95% pack out easily pays for that 10 to a hundred times over. Um, so if you're, if, so the argument is if you're growing a high value crop and a ton per acre of gypsum is going to improve crop quality, yield, shelf life, anything that you get compensated for, it's more than more, it's, it's very, very worth yeah. it. Yeah. Um, okay. It's usually about 10 bucks a bag for a 50 pound bag, yep. maybe more now that yeah. things are more expensive. Um, in cannabis production, rates are much, much higher. People apply often one gram of gypsum per gallon of water, and they just do it every single time they water. Um, some growers apply five tons per acre outside. That's what? kind of an old school.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. That's so, so much. My
1: recommendation is two tons an acre, one mm-hmm. to two, which is, you know, you're kind of in that range it's and that's because for what you're saying it's if you just if you do it every year you don't want to necessarily apply four tons per acre yeah um so yeah i think one to two tons per acre is a really good healthy application and then if you want to apply more mid-season you can top dress it or you can fertigate it depending on how you feed
0: yeah and i was supplementing with wca which we will talk about in just a second but before i get off gypsum i wanted to mention or just calcium in general um The reason it's so valuable to cut flower growers such as myself and the listeners, most of our listeners, is the stem quality, which I'm sure is um, pretty much in line with cannabis in that hollow stems of particular crops, which you and I have talked about, Brian, things like stock and campanula and snapdragons, hollow stems on those particular uh, crops is a real problem because they tend to uh, snap and break break over and they're just not a high quality product if they have a hollow stem. And those three crops in particular are ones that I've noticed a big difference on once I started increasing the calcium um, flush into the soil and also calcium fertigation and foliar feeding. So that is I think one reason uh, for flower farmers to just dump on <laughs> the gypsum if there's no harm in putting it there, except that it is like it will eat into your budget eventually, but put as much on as you can, I guess, because it's also not going to go bad, right? From what it sounds like you're saying, it if I dump a bunch of it on, but it doesn't get used right away by the plant, it's just going to be there for the next flip of the bed, like whatever goes into that bed next, Right
1: as long as it's not leaching. So in, mm. in environments where there's a lot of precipitation, um, let's just say more than 30 inches per year, you can leach it out of the soil um, because okay. the, the soil doesn't necessar- a lot of soils would don't necessarily have the ability to to hold it. Okay. Um, so that's one reason that the, the other thing is I, I'm, I don't know all flower species. if there are any that are particularly salt sensitive, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily apply it at two mm. tons an acre. Oh, interesting. Um, Wait, from, can we
0: tease that apart? So what yeah. it, I thought, I if I was hearing right, like gypsum's fairly low in salt, but there is enough soluble salt that it will eventually kick into something. Is that what you're saying with that? Yeah. Even though the salt index
1: is low, salt-sensitive crops are very sensitive. So hmm. uh, yeah, it's still, it still will spike salts because at seven grams of solubility per gallon, it still puts a lot of PPMs of sulfate in calcium ions into the solution and it increases um, soluble salts most people are more familiar with the term ec electrical conductivity Mm -hmm. soluble salts and ec are synonymous the lab reports logan labs reports soluble salts but it's just an ec measurement so when you apply gypsum the ec of the soil will go up okay Um, it's just not nearly as much as if you applied the an equal quantity of really any other fertilizer of any kind so um but yeah, I mean, it still is, it still will increase the the soluble salts. And so really sensitive crops, mm-hmm. you just want to back off. I'm not saying don't use it. I'd say still use it, but right. uh, just be careful with the rates. The other thing I would mention is the only way to really know if you should be applying it every single year is, to, is just get a soil test. Right. Because when I look at a soil test, I, I use for calcium, I use both the standard soil test and the paste test, but I put more emphasis on the paste test. And if I see a 150 parts per million of soluble calcium I'm not necessarily going to re- recommend any more gypsum right so you just want to you follow the follow the data and that will tell you whether to apply it again right. every year
0: okay yeah good point. I, I kind of forgot about soil testing. <laughs> no, I didn't yeah, forget. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously that would be a great way to understand what we're what we have in the soil. And I did I did paste test with you and and you were great. So for any listeners who are listening, Brian is available for hire. He does awesome consulting work um and we ran through some of my soil with both the the regular soil test and then a paste test. And that was the first time I had ever done a paste test was the one that you and I walked through together, Brian. And I was fascinated. It was was so helpful to have that information in addition to the standard test. And then also we did tissue testing, or I did tissue testing with crops that were in that soil (laughs) so we had this whole spectrum of data to go through which we're going to talk a little bit about tissue testing in a little bit but i just wanted to put it out there to listeners that pace testing is sort of next level soil testing and very helpful i thought it was really great i'd done lots of soil testing in my career um, but found uh, the pace test to be really informative so i'm I'm glad you pushed me to do one
1: (laughs) yeah thanks thanks and let me add one more thing a lot of biological regenerative growers often ask the question, which is a really good question. Sh- shouldn't the, the soil be providing this calcium naturally? Mm. Shouldn't there be enough calcium on the clay colloid if the balance is right? And um, and further, maybe biology is mineralizing and making calcium available. And that is all true to a certain extent. But one thing I was thinking about with flowers, which I think about with cannabis and which I think about with peaches, is that these these crops were bred in high nutrient environments. When I think of flowers, I, and this, you mm-hmm. you surely know more about this than I do. But I think about the Dutch. I immediately oh, go to yeah. like <laughs> the Dutch. Yeah, <laughs> and they are expert horticulturalists. They are very um, controlled environment. Usually not organic. They breed their their vegetables and their flowers in very high nutrient environments. So mm-hmm. a lot of these genetics, you know, prefer these high nutrient environments. And when we looked at your stock you said it was one of your best
0: mm-hmm, uh, crops, crops ever and yeah.
1: the nutrient levels on your on your um your paste tests were quite high mm-hmm. which i really like to see because when i think of a um you know i don't know roses or or dahlias or any of these yeah. big you know big flowers that are just showy and yeah. amazing like i just think that a lot of these actually prefer really high nutrient levels and i think soils oftentimes can't provide the amount of soluble nutrients just through their natural processes. I'd also say that sandy soils or low CEC soils just simply um, can't yeah. can't swing. Same thing with peach production. I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to grow an enormous amount of fruit on a single acre, and that just takes a lot mm-hmm. of nutrition. So I think there's yeah. a, a kind of a cognitive bias with organic growers, um, which in one way is really good and really healthy, where less is more. But mm-hmm. sometimes I think that. A lot of growers need to, uh, with heavy feeding crops, they need to increase their nutrition.
0: Yeah, and I know, I think you and I talked about this before in the last episode, or maybe not, but uh, with flower production, which is even slightly different than with cannabis production, with with the kind of flower production that I'm doing at my farm, when we harvest, we're taking, like, the whole plant. There's, there's hardly anything left, so there's nothing, like, really regenerating the soil. Mm-hmm. It's like... let's take stock, for instance, that crop, it is a single cut plant. And we take literally the entire plant when we harvest. And so there's nothing left to regenerate the soil. It's essentially a sponge has just taken out lots of nutrients, (laughs) not really Mm -hmm. put anything back in. um, And then we're going to flip the bed and do it all over again. So in that scenario, the plant is not contributing very much to the the soil richness. It's just it's just taking it out. So as our job, I think, surely our job as growers is to help facilitate returning nourishment to the soil and 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 supporting the soil biome in that way because we're certainly taking a lot out of it. So I think that maybe is a little right. different. At least when I think of it, I try to do as few inputs and as few messing around with perennial crop production, anything that's going to stay in the soil for a while and have a lot of biomass and capacity to photosynthesize. But for those, you know, churn and burn annual crops that we grow at my farm, like all that's doing is just a suck. It's a sucking all the nutrients out of the soil. So yeah, major net loss of
1: nutrients, especially over time. I agree.
0: Yeah. So, um, all right. So let's. Oh wait! Before I forget to ask, because I think at least one person listening right now is going to ask, what does a paste test do that a soil test can't do? Can you explain that in simple English yeah, for everyone? That's,
1: <laughs> that's a great question. So, a, a standard soil test is, which is what the most common test done at all different labs around the U.S. Um, they're done in, in wildly different ways using different extractions, but. That the commonality between all of them is that they're using some kind of uh, sh- acid, a strong acid extraction that extracts all the theoretically available nutrients from your soil. So these are um, the numbers are fairly high because they're using a let's just say a a, a malic three. That's the the extractant that Logan Labs uses it has a pH of two point five, so it's extremely acidic and it and it looks at sort of the bank account, the savings account of nutrients that will be available over. Many decades. Um, it's a very crude but helpful measurement. And those nutrients are not available to the plant today or even this year. So a PACE test goes to the other end of the spectrum and uses a water extraction and just combines water and your soil to look at what's immediately soluble in the soil solution. The reality is that the um well, I, I should say the reality is somewhere in between those two mm. tests. Plants can make nutrients more available through organic acids and root exudates. And so there are more nutrients that are available just in a water extraction, um, but far less than in a standard soil strong acid extraction. So we're using two different soil tests to sort of approximate um, the nutrient availability to plants. And I have found that PACE tests, which again, water soluble nutrients are far more correlated with what's actually happening in the field and what the tissue test results are showing Mm.
0: so i think
1: the reality is actually a lot closer to a saturated paste test okay and i'll add that when you when you send um, your irrigation water Mm. to the lab with your soil they'll run the paste test with your irrigation water and i think that uh replicates that soil solution even closer so uh, water is never perfectly clean and sometimes it's extraordinarily dirty so when you combine your soil and your water you can see quite different results than if you just used
0: mm. yeah I nice think water. that was one thing i didn't know until you instructed me was to send it in with the irrigation water and once you said that I was like oh yeah that makes sense because i i have a pretty decent water like it's just well water and it doesn't have any major um imbalances but say somebody had a, a you know uh like an Iron rich water, or something like that's obviously going to change drastically the readout of the paste test. So I thought that was really insightful to send it in with irrigation water. Um, I'm glad you suggested it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay. So now we've talked about gypsum, um, which, by the way, tell us how much you put on your peach orchard this last year, because I know you did a big yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, application. Right.
1: So it's, but yeah, I should have mentioned this. I tissue tested multiple times. and actually did what's called sap analysis multiple times through the season on my peach trees. And I have three acres of uh, two-year-old peach trees. And I was consistently showing a calcium deficiency, which bothered me immensely because I know how important calcium is. And um, so it was sort of perfect for me to put Uh, this kind of program to the test. So this year, I pulled back all of my fabric. I'm going to be planting a cover crop now. Um, That was just for establishment. And I spread two tons per acre in row. So instead of broadcasting two tons over the entire surface area of an acre, Mm -hmm. I just applied it around the base of the tree. It's just a more um, targeted, effective, efficient way to apply nutrients is when you apply it in the row. Mm -hmm. So that would be the equivalent of if I if I broadcast it evenly across my entire farm it would be the equivalent of about six tons per acre. whoa
0: I didn't even think about the fact that you only did it in row I knew you did two tons but yeah. I, didn't
1: realize. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking I mean, about so each, that each tree we went around with um, two thousand pounds super sacks they I call them totes yeah. okay and um, if you're applying this much gypsum by the way you can get it extremely inexpensively a single tote was I think seventy dollars I mean that's two thousand pounds so yeah, oh my it's, gosh. It's something-
0: Wait, where did yeah, you get that, it? Like, can you ship? Do you get it shipped, or you got it located? Yeah, so you can get it out of a,
1: a mine in Utah. If any of your listeners are interested, yeah. I can just connect them to the source. Okay. The issue is freight. Yeah. So I probably paid more in freight than I did for the actual product. <laughs> well, but the I would think so. Utah, <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. You,
0: the
1: closer you are to Utah, it can be extremely inexpensive. Wow. Um So we went around with these totes on my tractor. It was essentially two shovelfuls per tree so two okay. um keeping spade shovels per tree um just sprinkled around the base of the tree you know
0: was it dug uh, into the soil or worked in in any way or you just sort of broadcast so because
1: gypsum it, it was a powdered product mm-hmm. and because it's um the particle size is very very small it'll flow right down into the soil with mm-hmm. precipitation so i've already seen about half of it disappear with the first
0: snow event
1: and by the spring I'm hoping I can't see anything on Mm -hmm. the soil it'll all have worked its way down into the root zone
0: wow that's a that's a lot of (laughs) gypsum
1: it's a lot of gypsum it was a lot it was was a lot I mean it was a lot of weight Like my my wrist (laughs)
0: Uh, I can imagine Follow up question: A couple, I think I have a couple follow up questions. I got to get my shock uh, shock out of the way here. Um, so, so you didn't have a chance to see if that changed the deficit yet, right? Like because you just did it, you'll have to wait till next year to do the t- the testing, and then you'll be able to tell if it really helps. Yeah, helped. yeah. Okay.
1: The, per- the perennial crops, you know, it's every change takes a year or two years to actually see. Okay. So this year I'm going to repeat, do all the testing and um, I'm also going to be breaking my farm into two different blocks, and I'm going to do a ton of calcium foliars on one side, and I'm not going to do anything to the other side. And so I'll also be able to compare um, if if those foliars are moving the needle on calcium as well. So I'm. Kind of have a control, and then the foliar. Yeah, yeah,
0: treatment. yeah. Oh, I am very excited about that experiment. You know, I'm going to be <laughs> following up because I want to know all about um, how that works. And so, works. I'm gonna, and just as
1: a as a teaser, we can talk about this. Um, I'm going to be using. Well, I'm going to. I have about four different calcium foliar okay. products that I'm that I'm going to be using. Um, one of them, I don't. I, I think I'm most excited. And I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about yep. the the Jadam, uh quick oyster shell.
0: Oh, you're gonna make some? Okay.
1: I'm thinking vinegar oyster shell only because the numbers I've seen on that are way higher in in available calcium. Oh, than are the
0: they shells? Okay.
1: Um, but anyway, I I'll do the eggshells too. But I just I need a lot of eggs to do three right. acres. Right. Right. Um, well, and I, I can mean... buy that oyster shell flour. <laughs>
0: I guess that's the question is, do you have – so I know another farmer um, I was talking to up in Canada. He's he's a broadacre commodity crop grower, and he wants to do WCA, um, the eggshell extracts, like – on all his heritage grains next year. And so he is thinking of um, partnering with a local food co-op or something like that where he can get, or like restaurant or something like, get large-scale quantities of eggshells. So there is that option if you feel like doing it. But I've never actually done the oyster extract, but I'm very curious to hear. So did you get a hold of some to test? Or how how are you knowing that the the concentration of calcium is higher in the, or- in the oyster.
1: So the only reason I say that is because um, I found a cool database of different plant extracts, ferments mm-hmm. and um, actually a guy you interviewed, not, I think his name's Nigel. Oh Palmer. yeah. Nigel.
0: Yeah. 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 He was on here a couple seasons ago. He's
1: awesome. So he, so he has a, if you go to nigel-palmer.com backslash data, mm-hmm. he's tested a bunch of um, fermented plant juices and vinegar extractions he's got the oyster shell the shrimp shells eggshell yeah <laughs> facial hair interesting um, <laughs>
0: i love nigel he's, he's he's like us he's kindred spirits so um but he must have added yeah, some yeah. stuff to that site because he did tell us about that the last time he was on the um, podcast but there wasn't i don't think there was that much stuff it's been two three years ago now or something so maybe he's got some extra. and it's clear to me
1: it I wish he indicated what kind of test he was running, but mm. it, to me, it looks like a Logan lab paste test. No, I think he so, said
0: it was, it was paste test. So, um, okay. or at least it was Logan labs. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So, test.
1: so his calcium number for oyster shells is about 6,500 PPM, Whoa. which would be really, 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 really high, which is amazing.
0: Uh, yeah. Um,
1: so yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm just going to make some probably in test it. April or May and yeah. then test it Yeah. see what it says. Yeah. So you're
0: planning on getting just oyster powder then and and doing that? Or yeah. Are you going to actually do oyster shells? Okay.
1: Oh, no, it'd be oyster shell flour, flour. which yeah. you can get in 50,000 bags.
0: Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So by doing it through the extract, it's just going to make it water soluble right away and available to plants right away versus applying the oyster flour is going to take a while. To get incorporated into the soil biome yeah,
1: yeah and the okay. other thing is my soil ph is 8.2 whoa um, yeah and it's a whole different conversation around <laughs> calcium but you don't have to go into it <laughs> the, and so the the solubility of oyster shell flour would be no, it wouldn't it would not just much. sit as oyster shell flour it would not dissolve okay. now if i might my, my soil ph was 5.8 i would definitely apply it directly to the soil along with wollastonite and mm-hmm. lime and gypsum mm-hmm. and everything but mm-hmm. Um, I need that vinegar to make it available to essentially right. neutralize all the, the carbonates and make it in and liberate the calcium ions. Right. And I'm also applying this via foliar, remember, so oh, I need right. it to be formed. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Good point. So um, let's, uh, wow. Okay. Keep going with your planned products. I have so many directions. I want to go with this conversation. So I'm trying yeah, to stay yeah. well, focused. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the products
1: don't even really matter. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm all right. I'll just admit, let me just put it this way. I'm a both a believer in foliars and a deep skeptic. And so I'm gonna just be applying all the best organic calcium foliars with a hypothesis that it either will work or won't work. So I'm not even differentiating between which products. I'm not breaking my farm into I'm gonna use the albion (laughs) calcium foliar here and the WCA here. I'm just gonna throw every (laughs) foliar every single week. At one block and okay. see if they do anything.
0: Okay. And then are you going to do any fertigation too, or it's just like that area is just foliar?
1: So I'm going to fertigate all kinds of things, but not calcium. But not- the reason okay. for that is I did fertigate a lot of, well, not a lot. I, I tried fertigating um, a lot of solution grade gypsum last season when I identified the calcium deficiency. And with my fertigation system, it's just hard to to apply a thousand pounds of gypsum Mm. through a fertigation system. Mm -hmm. It's just a lot. So I think it's where I've come to with that is it's way more efficient to apply it as a top dress and water it in Mm -hmm. as opposed to, I mean, I could only get about 300 pounds per fertigation event and that would take, that would take me all day to like dissolve it and get it, get it through my filters and put it through my fertigation system. It could be that I just don't have quite the right fertigation system Mm -hmm. for gypsum, but, Mm -hmm. but I'd rather just top dress it.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Totally. So, okay. Then let's do where are we going next here? Uh, let's talk about foliar feeding in general. And you mentioned how you need that acid, that vinegar in the oyster flower extract to bring out the calcium. So let's talk about the fact that you taught me something that I didn't know about foliar feeding when you were um, helping me with my stuff is that it's good to have an acidic level in your foliar feed to help the plants absorb nutrients. So can you, uh, Spell that all out for our listeners, please.
1: (laughs) Sure, sure. So, yeah, so this year I was, I took a, uh, I think it was like a 15-hour foliar class um, that went deep into maximizing foliar sprays. It was primarily uh, targeted to grain, large uh, Hmm. grain producers who are not organic. Um, but are trying to increase their nutrient use efficiency through foliar, specifically nitrogen. The class was on nitrogen foliars. Hmm. But there were a few rules of thumb that a body of scientific literature has sort of come to to agree on regarding foliars. And that is that the the highest uptake efficiency in a foliar is is when the foliar spray is around five to 5.5 hmm. with, as a pH that's ideal, a max of 6.0. Um, so that's one tip. So every time when I mix foliars, my process is I make a list of everything I want in a foliar. And I I start applying each product at the, at the rate I want it until I hit an EC of about 1.5 would be my max. It can, and that's pretty, so that the ideal EC is 1.5 to, Three microsiemens per centimeter. So if you have like an EC meter, you Mm -hmm. can stick it, stick it in your solution and and test the EC. I like to be on the lower side because, and the reason EC matters is there has to be a certain concentration gradient between the foliar spray and the uh, cuticle for the plant to uptake um, nutrients. And so you, when the and and a lot of people would argue that the EC doesn't matter because as the water evaporates on the surface of the leaf, the EC goes up. So Mm -hmm. eventually the concentration gradient will be high enough where the the leaf will uptake it. So in a dry environment, I like to keep it a little bit low. Um, So I keep adding products until I hit 1.5 and then I stop. Hmm. And I acidify my water using citric acid down to a pH of five to 5.5. So I'm constantly, when I'm mixing the foliar solution, I'm constantly testing EC and pH. pH
0: essentially. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have not actually um we talked about pH in regards to WCA and also some JLF that I made with Snapdragons, and that's where this came up in our individual conversations. Um but here I'm now gonna say that I've never actually thought to test the pH of my tank mix, like what it ends up being like mm-hmm. at as the product that goes on the leaf. So I am now going to go get myself a pH meter and
1: test yeah, the pH. Yeah. I'll just say pH is way more important than EC too. I would guess that your EC is going to be very low at the rates mm-hmm. you're applying. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Because again, it'll just sit on the leaf and evaporate until the concentration gradient is, right. is high enough and then it'll take it. Now, the other thing to, to note is there's multiple different uptake mechanisms into a leaf. Most people are familiar with stomata. Mm-hmm. And stomata, there doesn't need to be a concentration gradient. It's like mm-hmm. a you know a mouth. This is
0: yeah trap that it gets into yeah right? trapdoor. Yeah. Yeah. i will say
1: most stomata are on the underside mm-hmm. of leaves mm-hmm. um in dicots which are all the plants we're growing That's pretty much most
0: everything part. we grow
1: <laughs> so yeah, yeah when you're full spraying you want to just make sure your your droplets are hitting the underside but in addition to stomata there are also uh, nutrients can enter through the cuticle they can mm-hmm. enter through trichomes they can enter through plant veins mm-hmm. and then the coolest uptake mechanism is called endocytosis where the 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 mo- an entire molecule, not just an ion, but yeah. an uh, entire molecule can essentially be um, devoured, like eaten, and sucked <laughs> into the to the leaf. It's it's a minor uptake channel, but it still yeah. is, I mean, it's, so an organic molecule of any kind could just be taken up okay. um, through endocytosis. So, so that's why EC matters. But again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't focus on it too much. So
0: quick, quick uh, clarification question. If the EC is above three, then does that mean it's going to burn? That's, that's what burning is or what's the. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you, it, it kind of depends on the, on the relative humidity and the temperature, but yeah, if you, if you spray above three, you're starting to risk um, burning. Uh, Oh, it also depends on pH. So for example, this year, I went out and hit a single tree with iron sulfate, um, and the pH was like four or 3.5. I have notes on this. It was really low, really okay. acidic Okay. foliar, and the, it was above 3.0 EC and it, it burnt the Ooh. leaves. Um, luckily, with my experience with foliar, foliars, is even if you burn the leaves, which is um, called phytotoxicity. Mm-hmm usually it grows right out of it. Like it doesn't really slow the plant down. So if you, if you accidentally mess up with a foliar, just think of it as a learning experience. um, But yes, to, to your, to your point, that's where you get into, you start playing with fire a little bit.
0: Okay. And did you intentionally spray that one peach tree with (laughs) that or it was an accident?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So this year I was doing, I would label trees and do different foliar just messing around. I was just trying to find a workaround for buying an expensive iron, amino chelated iron product. And so Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, why don't I do iron sulfate? And I just it wasn't that I was trying to, I just forgot to look at the pH. Right. Okay. Gotcha.
0: I was just curious if you're a mad scientist, which I suspect you actually are, but not in that particular moment. Try Try not to harm you. let me let me add one more thing about about
1: foliars. The the biggest takeaway from this this course was the, the the best thing you can do is make sure every single foliar has a source of carbon in it, and ideally multiple sources of carbon. Mm. So when I say carbon, I need humic acid, fulvic acid, amino acids, molasses, kelp, citric acid, liquid fish, hydrolysate, a a compost extract, or a plant extract. So those are the common like soluble sources of carbon. And the reason for that is um, twofold. One, it it can chelate nutrients and increase the uptake efficiency, Um, but also there's a metabolic effect that happens when the plant uptakes carbon with nitrogen. So this is specifically for nitrogen that, that mm-hmm. massively increases nitrogen use efficiency. Ooh. And, um, this is what the, the large sort of commodity growers were most interested in yeah. is how can they reduce their nitrogen inputs by applying their nitrogen with carbon, mm-hmm. um, which I think most organic and regenerative growers sort of are doing anyway with your plant extracts and things but,
0: yeah but i don't uh, think we know we're doing that so i exactly, think it's, exactly. <laughs> i think it's important to acknowledge yeah. that that's what we're doing
1: <laughs> but luckily it's baked into organic production for the most part mm-hmm. is like all of the majority of organic products besides gypsum and potassium sulfate and epsom salt um and some of the micronutrient sulfates everything else has carbon in it mm-hmm. so it is to a certain extent baked into the to the program into
0: the formula but, but...
1: <laughs> i guess what i would say is i add fulvic acid to every single foliar spray it, okay. it, it also acts as a penetrant so again increased uptake efficiency in foliars and it's just another source of carbon and chelation and mm-hmm. biostimulation so mm-hmm. um carbon is critical
0: okay that that's uh It's really good detail to know. I like that level of detail, like that granular knowledge is so valuable to just helping us, you know, be citizen scientists to understand what we actually do (laughs) as growers. Uh, One of my follow-up uh, comments, points, questions, I don't know, is two things. So I use a lot of vermicast extracts in all of my foliars. Like that's just always uh, in the foliar. So that's a carbon source, I would assume. it's Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: Okay. A really good one. A yeah. really high quality
0: okay. one. Okay, so that is a good one to use for those that don't want to buy in a product. And then I've been using amino acids lately as a nitrogen source in foliar feeding, thanks to our previous conversation here. Um, so I, so now I realize that's also not just nitrogen, but a carbon source in my foliar mm-hmm. feeds, which probably helps with that sort of, um, what do they call that? Synergy. That's the word. Synergy of all, all the components. But that leads me now to the next question or just conversation point is... We talked about amino acids in the last episode as an alternative, probably better alternative than fish uh, emulsion, which so many flower farmers use. And then I know you've learned some more things about amino acids since the last time we talked in terms of what's the best way to apply it or what it's doing in the plant. So you want to update us on your your new? Yeah, package? sure. And I would, just,
1: I would just kind of caveat that a little bit with I think when you need nitrogen, mm-hmm. I think it's the preferred source over liquid fish. Okay. Um, it, w- when you're trying to target nitrogen, it's just a higher concentration with better efficiency, and you're giving your plants more nitrogen per unit. Um, so I think that that's that's where it's that's where I can say it's, it's you know specifically certainly preferable. Liquid fish has a has a really important role. In as sort of a, it's a, it's a more broad spectrum liquid fertilizer. And I think it's extremely biostimulating to biology. So there's a classic, um, soil drench that's that i I do twice a year in the spring yeah. and the fall and, and all fruit growers all over the world do this, mm-hmm. which is essentially liquid fish, uh, biological inoculant, uh, like a full spectrum biological inoculant and, uh, sugar source and a humic acid source so i'll just go through that again liquid fish at really low rates like okay no i don't remember the rates a few gallons per acre so okay liquid fish high quality fish i prefer a product called oceanic hydrolysate it's really really high in lipids in fat hmm. um it's pretty low in nitrogen it's only two percent
0: okay
1: and but it's it's made out of salmon carcasses and you uh, know how fat salmon are yeah so they're just yeah. the stuff is thick it's yeah. extraordinarily thick.
0: probably stinks so, to high li- heaven
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, oh yeah they all do um so yeah liquid fish with a biological inoculant a microbial inoculant can it's, we can
0: we talk about I what what exact could that be vermicast extract or what what's a bio absolutely bio? That okay. could,
1: that's a great option i mean okay. most of the, most of these growers doing this are are very large growers and they're not making their own compost right. so they're using something like uh, Taneo spectrum um which is just a, a like a powdered inoculant okay but if you have a good vermic a, a good vermicompost that's far yeah. that's
0: okay way better.
1: okay um and then a sugar source which is usually molasses, molasses.
0: okay yeah and a humic
1: uh a humic substance which is usually uh dissolvable humic acid okay. and a soil drench with that in the spring and the fall works wonders hmm. to soil structure and that's mainly through the bio just that the explosion of, of biology so
0: and that's best and, a lot let, and that's yeah. best on like woody shrubs, like orchards, things like that. That's not like something annual. in annual production, or you think that's even good for annuals? Oh, yeah. and,
1: and, and annuals too. I mean, okay. it's like such a good way to wake up your soil and to, okay. to put it to, to rest in the fall. So it's used really as kind of like a, a biological feat. And then, and then when the biology explodes, it mineralizes all kinds of existing nutrients in the soil mm. and creates a flush of nutrients. So it's a second-order effect. So if you apply um, let's just say 20 pounds per acre of nitrogen through liquid fish, you're going to get way more than that because the biology then mineralizes organic matter and, um, crop residue. And so it's, it's very biostimulating. The, the other, yeah. And, and, and that, I guess the other main use in tree fruit production is just fertigating liquid fish. And it, again, like what I just said, it it creates this sort of second order effect of nitrogen release. But if, if you, that again, it's, a very broad spectrum product, and so I think if you're just trying to target nitrogen, and more specifically, if you're just foliar feeding, mm-hmm. an amino nitrogen is preferable.
0: Okay. Um,
1: but to answer your question, sorry, that was a tangent. No, I love about, that
0: tangent. That's the that's the good stuff right there.
1: <laughs> yeah, about amino acids, the science has sort of shown that a diversity of different nitrogen is preferable for plant metabolism. So. There's nitrate, there's ammonium, and there's amino acids that can all be uptaken by the plant. There are different forms of nitrogen that have different effects. Um, Luckily, in organic production, almost all of the products we're applying are protein meals, like feather meal or alfalfa Mm -hmm. meal, Mm -hmm. Um, liquid fish, which has ammonium and organic nitrogen proteins in it, amino acids, or a specific amino acid um, product. So you're going to be getting all of it if you're using organic products anyway, but when you just apply amino acids, amino acids are far more metabolically efficient than mm-hmm. um, nitrate and ammonium because when a plant uptakes nitrate, it then has to convert it back into amino acids to use it in the plant and, mm-hmm. and complex it in the leaf tissue. And so when you apply amino acids, you are saving a lot of photosynthetic energy that the plant doesn't have to ex- ex- extend or yeah. Um, yeah, sorry
0: expend. Yeah. Yep.
1: Spend. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Uh, and so you, you are saving the plant a lot of energy mm. and you get all of these again, metabolic sort of synergies when you're applying amino acids. The, the one thing I think about a lot is when you apply amino acids to the soil, there's intense competition with the microbes. Mm. So a lot, a lot of times the microbes will actually feed first mm. and uptake those amino acids before the plant roots will. But in my opinion, that's not a problem because microbes die and cycle that back right. into availability and so whether you're feeding the microbes amino acids or the plants it doesn't really matter it's it's all part of a right symbiotic system but of, it is of about
0: speed in some ways so if you have a so i'm thinking this through as as you're talking normally if i saw a, a a pretty intense nitrogen deficiency in my plants, Um, I would be putting some blood meal on. That was my, in the past, you know, uh, emergency Band-Aid nitrogen trick. But amino acids would be an immediate, like foliar feed it. It goes immediately into the plant and is immediately, um, you know, sort of, Consumed and eaten, <laughs> but, yes. And yes. without having to expend any more energy. So it sounds like amino acids might be the best emergency, um, you know, treatment. And then if you put stuff on the soil, you're just going to have to wait until all the microbes eat and die <laughs> and decay before that's, that that's that right. comes through. Yeah, yeah. so
1: yeah. it's far faster. Liquid yeah. liquid amino acids are far faster than any dry amendment, and mm-hmm. they're more efficient in foliar. Um, so. And I would do, if I, if my plants needed nitrogen, I would actually drench, I mean, I would foliar and I would drench, And you would but drench,
0: okay, okay. I,
1: I, I usually think soil first um, and then foliar, mm-hmm. but I would hundred percent do a, a water soluble amino acid for in that situation. Um, but I would stick to pre-plant amendments um, for, you know, dry amendments, just yeah. to keep my, my levels high before planting. Yeah. A lot of cannabis growers I work with feed amino acids heavily Hmm. because and they so they run their nitrogen levels in their soil really low and then they Mm. feed amino acids constantly through the cycle so it's a it's way more expensive um as a nitrogen approach but their theory is that they get better cannabinoid and terpene production by keeping their nitrogen really really low um, and then just feeding amino acids just as the plant needs it It's it's a spoon feeding approach
0: about that so one of the pests that a lot of particularly winter grown crops are susceptible to which is the the most equivalent to cannabis you know um, production in my you know my limited experience here but is aphids and it's usually they're coming on to flowering crops like we grow ranunculus anemones all those things is because they're attracted to the rich nitrogen source and when we're growing in nitrogen, rich soil there's no control over that and then when the when the aphids show up you're just kind of like well here we go we're either going to douse it in pesticides or we're going to you know i'm always releasing beneficial insects but sometimes the aphids show up and you're just like well there goes that crop that that's you know there's not really much else we can do about it so i'm wondering if the spoon feeding approach would actually be better indoor like in an indoor high high end so to speak um crop cycle in greenhouse production for cut flowers so that maybe then we could we could avoid the aphid pressure what do you think i know that's probably like a total yeah. like
1: well yeah i mean two thoughts one is if, if you're trying to reduce the nitrogen status of your plants or ha- or take more control and you're confident that that will help your aphid pressure then hmm. that is a hundred percent a better approach
0: okay I don't know. I'm not confident. I'm just curious. So then, then my second point
1: is: there's no doubt that that the nitrogen status of plants affects aphid populations. Mm -hmm. I've I've always sort of known this, but I've never been able to pin down exactly how. There's a couple different theories I've heard. One is it's not so much about how much nitrogen is in the plant, but the form of nitrogen. So Mm -hmm. if you have excess nitrate in the plant, Mm -hmm. that can be a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And nitrate, so. This is a little technical, but nitrate is reduced into, into complete proteins through a process called nitrate reductase, which I mentioned earlier, which yeah. requires other synergistic nutrients such as molybdenum. So okay. a lot of growers get sap tests and look at how much nitrate, ammonium, molybdenum are in their the plant sap, okay. and then they will do a molybdenum foliar, for example, to, re- to reduce that nitrate. So it may be more complicated than just total nitrogen in the plant. Um, I've also, yeah, I've also seen what I think are nitrogen deficient plants get aphids. So I guess Mm. I'm not totally convinced.
0: Well, if we go to, so there was a podcast episode a while ago um, on here with Tom Dykstra, who Dr. Tom Dykstra, who is the guy who's, pushing bricks readings as like an indicator of pest pressure and which pest and everything A really fascinating episode everybody should listen to um so if I if I channel um Tom he's probably going to say well your Brix numbers are low and and it's just like anytime the Brix numbers fall really low and any plant in terms of like you're saying you've seen unhealthy plants also have you know they have nitrogen deficiency also have aphids on it that could just be like those plants are just struggling and pests are are nature's cleanup crew, they're just going to come in and find whatever they can find. But the, the aphid pressure I'm thinking about specifically is on very lush, healthy-looking plants, particularly like ranunculus is the biggest one for us um, flower farmers. And it'll just be like overnight, suddenly they're just carpeted in aphids um, is worst case scenario and I'm thinking in that in that instance I've always thought it's just that there's too much sort of soft fast growth that's happened and the cell structure is very weak Um, and so that piercing mouth part of the aphid is just able to get right into there and just suck the juice out and they're loving all the sugar they're loving all the stuff that's coming with it and so in that case my what i had i this is not scientific <laughs> for the record everybody listening this is not scientific <laughs> but one of the things i was trying to observe and was curious if it it would help this past year in my greenhouse was applying wca which is water soluble calcium from knf which we will talk about um i was applying that to see if the calcium would would strengthen the cell walls and sort of just yeah. balance the nitrogen because I think calcium can kind of bi- balance nitrogen a little bit in my rudimentary research. And I was just curious if that was almost like, not a, it's not a pesticide, but it's just like a pest deterrent almost. And I think it was working. <laughs> but again, there's so many variables yeah. in nature. Well, it's funny
1: because before, <laughs> before you even brought that up, I was yeah. thinking, what about calcium and silica? Because cell walls Silica
0: I need to try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good call. So yeah,
1: I mean, when I when I think cell wall strength, I think calcium and silica. I mean, yeah. when it comes to like powdery mildew, for example, yeah. if you push calcium and silica and boron high mm-hmm. enough, it'll strengthen cell walls and prevent the fungal hyphae from puncturing the leaves. Yeah. And it could be totally similar with, um, the with aphids. Yeah. And I think your intuition's right around the nitrogen thing. I mean, yeah. I think that and so to answer your question, yeah, if you wanna if you want to have more control and reduce that soft succulent tissue. Mm-hmm. And just, and a lot of it's a timing thing. It's like when the aphids, when it warms up and those aphids come out and your plants are just too lush, yeah, and yeah, I would pull back on pre-plant amendments and feed when, just as your plants need it. And luckily nitrogen, unlike a lot of other nutrients, it's, it's a very visual thing. Like the mm-hmm. best nitrogen management, I think you just do with your eye.
0: Yeah. Just watch. Yeah. You can
1: see when your plants want more nitrogen. Um, I mean, you don't want to let them get too acutely deficient, but yeah. sometimes yeah. just The just very subtle color differences Mm -hmm. are how you can manage nitrogen a lot better. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I, it'll take me a few years to test this out though because my soil in my greenhouse is still so rich. That's the soil we tested and looked at together, and it's like, oh my gosh, the nitrogen's off the charts.
1: The (laughs) point that I wanted to make earlier is, I've seen so many soil tests. In high tunnels mm-hmm. where the nutrient levels are high because it's not getting any precipitation, mm-hmm. so those nutrient levels build a lot faster than outside, where the rain can really push levels back down. So, um, oftentimes I'll see people that have applied the same exact amendments for five years, and they show me a test where, with it, you know, an outdoor test versus a high tunnel test, yeah. and the, the levels in the high tunnel are a lot higher. So you, you don't have to watch out for I don't know if that I would just say, keep an eye on nutrient levels getting too high in in covered spaces.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely, um, have been guilty of that. <laughs> So, yeah, I I need to well, the soil that I got in to my greenhouse, I had soil brought in for listeners who don't know. I had soil brought in and it was a mix of um, topsoil from uh, an area of Pennsylvania that has really good soil, which was a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, And then mushroom compost and then fine. uh, Oh, wait, make sure I say this right. Pine fines, which is a weird word, but basically the soil company I worked with thought that the pine fines would balance out the pH and create a little air in the soil. These are raised beds, uh, actual raised beds that are, you know, um, have sides on them. Uh, but that mushroom compost, man, that is, everybody watch out for mushroom compost. I'm pretty sure everybody knows that. But here in Pennsylvania, where I am, we're really close to the mushroom capital of the world, uh, Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, which is where like all the button mushrooms in the United States are grown, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and oh, so there's it. You can literally get mushroom compost for free or, like, sometimes they'll pay you to take it because they have too much, uh, you know, as the mushrooms are uh, chewing through the wood product in the horse manure, um, they they don't know where to get rid of it. So anyway, uh, but mushroom compost, super high in phosphorus and super high in salts, and that's why... My greenhouse soil is very, very high in salts and phosphorus and also nitrogen. And it's just a process of, I guess, growing stuff to pull it out of, of that soil. That's yeah, all I can, you can do. Crop it
1: out. And you know, I think, again, I think most of your flowers are going to enjoy yeah. those luxury levels. To go back to aphids too, yeah. we're sort of talking about how to approach them with nutrition, which I think is a very holistic, hmm. it is a very worthwhile conversation. At the end of the day, though, if it's, if it's affecting your um you know your final harvest there are organic very effective organic um very safe non-toxic sprays that mm. you can just smoke, smoke um, like, like it,
0: like them smoke like 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 actual smoke are you that's I mean, like wait tell know, me more. sorry that's
1: just a term that's just a, <laughs> yeah that's just a term for you know
0: for killing just, them yeah that's them. all right yeah
1: exactly so there's in in orchards around here the, the aphid program is uh before the, the trees leaf out, which mm. is going to be different for flowers, you apply lime sulfur, which okay. is not a, a nice, it's, it's not nice. It's caustic. It yeah, has a very, very say, high
0: heat. Sounds like it.
1: Yeah. But it doesn't hurt the plants. It's not a toxic compound. It, okay. it biodegrades into very just simple um, things. They So, and that'll kill all the, the, um, what is the, the, the baby aphid, the larva or the nymph stage. Yeah, the nymph yeah. stage. Yeah. And then if they come during the season, I think, I think the brand product is Grandivo, mm-hmm. but I could be I've wrong. Heard
0: of that? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and Grandivo, I think, knocks them out pretty well. Um, I've never had to use that because the lime sulfur takes care of them.
0: So with it's the really... lime sulfur, though, are you you're broadcasting that? Like, how? What? How are you applying right.
1: that? It's a so. Lime sulfur is actually a liquid. Oh, it is a liquid. Yeah, you dilute it in water. I, I, I'm doing. I think I was putting on three gallons per acre, um, and so and that would that would be too high for plants that have leafed out. So mm-hmm. if you have you know your flowers leafed out, you would want to bring that rate way down. Okay start real low and just slowly work your way up until you see phytotoxicity and you want to apply the right, right below phytotoxicity. And that should be enough to kill the aphids, but okay. I'm not an IPM guy. No, so okay. I may yeah, I mean, maybe way out of my lane and, and, It's just, these are just ideas. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, no. I like that because it gives me a rabbit hole to go down and hopefully find somebody else to talk about IPM with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's just what's used in orchards
1: and it's very attractive.
0: Well, that's part of what has always been so rewarding when I chat with you and then some other different guests is I try not to have just uh, flower farmers or just IPM specialists or just like, I like um, getting other industries to have this conversation with me. So for you, it's like you have this great expertise in orchards, which I know nothing about orchards, but obviously there's things in orchards that cross over to the kind of production that I'm doing. Or cannabis, like there's a lot of knowledge in cannabis that can cross over to flower production. So that's why I think it's always helpful just to throw throw random knowledge out in, into the conversation. Yeah, no, I
1: I agree. And that's where I've, I've had a lot of learning and actually the cannabis community has benefited from that greatly because there's just, there are, there are really good solutions in all different crop types, like a a carrot grower. I mean, there's just like such cool, uh, ideas. And let me just amend that the lime sulfur is mixed with oil.
0: Oh, okay. And that's
1: what makes it phyto toxic. And I I also think the oil is very important for the aphids. So, um, Usually it's like 50, 50 oil, the lime sulfur. Okay.
0: All right. Good to know. Yeah. I'm going to. Oh, and, and by okay. the way,
1: oil is very, very effective. Yeah. Like Horticultural oil is very effective. Yeah. it's Just as well. smother so them. You can, you can forget the lime sulfur and you just yeah. suffocate them.
0: The one challenge with applying any, even something like horticulture oil to flowering crops, it, and there's plenty of growers that do it and it is an organic application. Totally acknowledge all of that. My personal hesitation has always been that with flowering crops, There are so many insects attracted to flowering crops, like so many. So, like, if I try to kill one thing, I am killing all sorts of things that I actually don't want to have that sort of... Uh, wholesale death, so to speak, because yeah, it it takes the balance out of the beauty of being a flower farmer is yeah. that we have a stupid amount of beneficial insects because they're attracted to our crops. So when you try to do pest control through sprays, you usually end up doing more harm than good. Just in that, like you get you you throw it all out of balance again. So um, in I my, agree. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I just, I stopped spraying years ago, just because it seemed like every time I sprayed, I ended up with more pests. And the reason that was, is because every time I'd spray something, I'd wipe out the parasitoid wasps or the, you yep. know, all yep. the, the lace wings and all, all that. the things. And so. that's another thing with
1: aphids is, I read once that the, the once you see one of those aphid <sighs> skeletons, they're like those little, yeah. that means that you that there are parasitoid There's wasps. parasitoids, yeah the increase in the parasitoid wasp population is very exponential. So as, mm. as soon as you start seeing those, you definitely don't want to yeah. mess up that cycle. Yeah. So I think your point is, is, is really good.
0: Yeah. Um, and you can, you can plant some really great stuff, which maybe Brian, you'd want to put around your farm, just any of the humble plants. Um, so dills, wild carrots, um, queen anne's lace uh they're all the all those sort of like little flowers <laughs> that yeah, attracts yeah. that attracts those parasitoid wasps naturally and that's one of our major crop uh families in flower farming and so we're just most flower farms just have this crazy volume of parasitoid wasps which is oh. very cool <laughs> so but we also have a lot of aphids too <laughs>
1: Oh, right. humble, that's a great potential term.
0: Yeah, yeah, humble. exactly. All right, so <laughs> I am, I am so far off of our track of topics, but I love it. Actually, I think we've, I think we've done really well. Um, we've just gone in a different direction than I thought. One thing I want to make sure. Oh gosh, okay, I don't want to take too long. Uh, let's just really quick hit on WCA and the fact that I tested it, and we got my test results back, and it was actually it's a real thing. It's not just uh, voodoo. It's <laughs> WCA, WCA actually works. And for listeners, this is from Korean Natural Farming. It is a homemade input that you make yourself. Um, WCA stands for water-soluble calcium. It's weird because there's no actual S in it, so I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> um, that's what it stands for. And it's made by taking eggshells and putting them in raw apple cider vinegar are some equivalent. And then that acid extracts the calcium out of the eggshells. And then you have a soluble plant, plant-ready plant um, liquid, which you can use either as a foliar or soil, etc. So now we tested it through a paste test through Logan Labs <laughs> and got the results back. And I have to say, I, I really chuckled, Brian, when you... Um, when i saw your reaction to because <laughs> you you were really surprised right
1: <laughs> yeah 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 i think my my initial hesitation it was just how many eggshells you need right but yeah it was this is why testing is so helpful and i was surprised there was a lot more calcium in it than i expected now i don't remember your dilution rate yeah. but looking at the initial i'm looking at the report and the first thing i see is the ph which is 5.9 and what we were talking about is Assuming this is your sort of that your was solution, my standard, yeah,
0: yeah. So, usually before we had this test, and the, what I sent in for the test was one teaspoon of WCA for a gallon of water, and so that's what we tested. And then I've changed that since, but keep going <laughs> with your well, no, I mean,
1: I, I think the pH was my, the biggest thing, and then I immediately go right down to calcium, and um, there is. What appears to be four times more calcium than any other nutrient which is awesome so there's low chloride there's low bicarbonates there's everything is relatively low except that calcium number which is awesome um it's in your in your at your one teaspoon per gallon rate is i think 35, 35. ppm
0: yeah and you so, told me that that the standard sort of um I don't know, parts per million that most cannabis growers or whatever are looking for is 150 parts per million per application, right?
1: Yeah, what I did is I took a very common organic foliar, amino chelated foliar product that's used both in cannabis and tree fruit. Um, It's called Albion Metallisate. And I reverse engineered their rate for an orchard. And what I got was 150 ppm of calcium. Okay. So, uh, I didn't, I, I, I've been meaning to actually do the same thing is, which is test it and see what it is <laughs> at right. that rate. Right. Um, but that's where, that's where I got that number.
0: Okay. So then with that number in mind, that in theory, you know, about a hundred, 150 parts per million is a good rate of calcium application. Um, and my WCA was coming back at 35 uh, ppm, I then increased, based on your recommendations, I did this slowly, I increased my rate and now, today, I am now doing one to two tablespoons per gallon of water, which puts me around, if I remember, like 130 to 160 part per million. I forget. I did the math. I should have looked before right. I got on here. Uh, but basically, increasing to that rate. So one tablespoon is three teaspoons. So that puts us, okay, I was wrong. That's three times... 35 parts per million. Somebody do the math because I'm really bad at 105, Not right? 100. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, so then um, that was one tablespoon. And then uh, if you go to two tablespoons, then you're getting a little bit higher than the 150. But um, so it just depends what crop I'm feeding, what, what issue I'm trying to address um, as to how much I'll put in there. But that has worked really well, for the record, upping it to that level. The recommended through KNF is usually one teaspoon per gallon, but um, increasing it has been totally fine. The, um, the thing I wanted to bring up in conversation today on the podcast was the fact that you and I had sort of talked about this over email, was the quality of the eggshells, does that matter? Does the volume of eggshells to vinegar matter? And I think we're in agreeance that it probably does, <laughs> but I'm Definitely. not sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So did you have any additional thoughts uh, that have popped up? <laughs>
1: I think the the biggest toggle there is the, how many eggshells, the, the, the eggshell to vinegar ratio is going to affect that the most. The quality of the eggshells is a function of what the chickens are eating. And, you know, you are what you eat, eats, if you've ever heard that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I mean, it depends on the calcium in their diet and thickness of the shell and all that. But so but I don't think that's going to I mean, I think that the ratio of vinegar to eggshells is going to matter the most. And I would personally just slam as many eggshells in the vinegar as possible. Is that an accurate thing? to? Yeah, that's what I've done,
0: too, now as well. I I think the the sample i set in sent in actually was like as many eggshells as i could fit in the jar with the okay. vinegar so i did try to to really pound it in um, but now yeah anytime i've sort of skipped the knf knf recommendations which i at this point, totally forget. But KNF actually tells you like this many ish eggshell egg ratio to vinegar. But now I basically just make mine in gallon glass jars and I fill the gallon glass jar um, about three quarters of the way full with crushed eggshells. um I don't fill it the whole way full because if you do, you get this. Uh, old school elementary uh science project thing happening where it's like one of those volcanoes that happens oh, the, no. the 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 chemical reaction between the eggshells and the vinegar is quite violent there's like all sorts of foam spewing everywhere uh so you can't fill it too full but i do that initially uh And then once the chemical reaction kind of calms down, which takes about a day uh, for it to really settle out, then I will actually add more eggshells to the jar and just kind of, it's just like a jar full of eggshells and some calcium in it. And and that's what I've been doing. Um, And yeah, it seems to be working, that's all I have to say. (laughs) Great, great. Well... That wraps up another energetic episode of No-Till Flowers. Remember, this is a two-part episode, so make sure to come back in a few days for the rest of this conversation, during which Brian and I talk about tissue testing and how invaluable it is for producing a premium crop. I am so grateful you tuned in today, and I hope you've got a lot out of this episode, because I know I sure did. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next one. And if you have a second, I'd love it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you're getting it. Reviews help grow the show and let others know it's worth a listen. Many thanks to Matt Moran, the post-production manager of No-Till Flowers, and gratitude to Nikolai Fox for the original music used here on the show. All right, until next time, remember, it all stems from the soil.